Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. We really have four martinis because we're going to start with a significant discussion that doesn't actually qualify as a martini. Uh, Most of you probably know, if you were paying attention to the news yesterday, that former Soviet Union General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev died at the age of 91. And so there's going to be quite a bit of coverage of this over the the coming days. And uh, Jim, uh, on the one hand, uh, Gorbachev is going to get a lot of credit for ending the Cold War. And some mainstream media sources, he's going to get virtually all of the credit. And he deserves some because when the wall came down and, and, uh, and people demanded freedom, he could have rolled the tanks in like he did at other times during his time as general secretary in Lithuania and Georgia and some other places. But he didn't when the big revolution push happened. And so what could have been very bloody was not. His predecessors absolutely would have done that. They did do that. Brezhnev in Czechoslovakia, Khrushchev in in Budapest, and Stalin, of course, slaughtered tens of millions of his own people. At the same time, though, he didn't just walk away from the Soviet Union. He was forced to. He couldn't keep up uh, with President Reagan, and it's President Reagan and his staunch allies uh, that deserve a lot of credit for this as well. So I don't want to take away everything you wanted to say here, but uh, while Gorbachev does deserve some credit for a very significant moment in history, uh, we got to be careful not to let history get rewritten here. Yeah, the story of Gorbachev, based on the facts and actual historical record, is good enough when you are the man who could have brought a very bloody end to the Cold War and inflicted even more pain and suffering and uh, bloodshed upon a Russian and Soviet people who had already suffered way too much in their uh, in the 20th century. You know, you deserve significant credit for not uh, taking everything down on your way out. That that is a significant and major turning point. And I've heard people arguing that the Soviet Empire was effectively the largest empire that didn't end with a catastrophic civil war or mass bloodshed. Now, by the way, we should point out, uh, I wrote that this something this morning and people pointed out, "Eh, the Romanians may have a different viewpoint how Ceausescu handled it. There were certain places where there was more bloodshed, but it was not on a large scale, uh, particularly after the failed coup against Gorbachev in 91, if I'm remembering correctly. Look, that is significant. Having said that, it's as if a lot of folks in the West, and ironically, it's mostly, I think, like Western media The more casual you are about history, the more casual you are about foreign policy, the more likely you are to make this error that Gorbachev wanted to end the Soviet Union. Um, He was a reformer and you could call him a Democrat, but he basically wanted more internal dissent and discussions and debate in the Soviet Union, but for the system to stay in place, for the Communist Party to remain Uh, the primary driver of decisions and for top-down decision-making and and all of that. And, you know, his reputation really kind of got shined. Now, I can't help but suspect that some of this was seeing the rapid end of the Cold War. People would have had to recognize, oh, you know, maybe maybe Ronald Reagan had something to do with this. Maybe all these policies that we said were crazy warmongering and were making conflict more likely instead of less likely. Ah, you know, who, who, who else can we credit for this? Ah, Gorbachev. You know, and to the idea that, you know, time calling him the man of the decade and this idea that Gorbachev single handedly did this. 
He did not want to bring about the end of the Soviet Union. And I think even more significant, I don't say more significant, but a point that really the, the Western media, you know, barely mentioned, and I only came across this when I was looking into this for writing today's jolt, Gorbachev has not been a full-throated critic of Vladimir Putin. He's gotten much more in the recent years, uh, but until about 2006 or so, uh, he was one. And actually, in 2017, a newspaper asked him, do you still trust Vladimir Putin? And he said yes. And I think it's safe to say that by 2017, everybody knew exactly what kind of man Vladimir Putin was. So Gorbachev is not quite this angelic figure that I think a lot of people would like to uh, paint him as. I suppose some of that's just baked in the cake. Give him credit, you know, rest in peace. Things could have gone a lot worse on his watch, but let's not, you know, pretend uh, that he was always this, you know, uh, visionary statesman on the side of the angels and that uh, the end of the Cold War was a goal he was always working for from the beginning. Yeah, he had a better grasp on reality than previous Soviet leaders, and that uh came at a, at a very important time with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the and the uh, expansion of freedom across Eastern Europe. And uh, you'll notice that 30 years later, uh, those are the people that still remember what it was like to not live in freedom. And so they are some of the more sane voices crying out in Poland and the Czech Republic and so forth when the rest of Europe and unfortunately a lot of voices in this country want to move uh, closer to the socialist idea. They're saying, we've done this. Trust us. You don't want to go there. And as for Ceausescu, uh, he ultimately was, you know, lined up against a wall and shot by his own people on Christmas. I had a history professor in college saying he, every time CNN showed the footage, he ran in and, and uh, you know, toasted it again uh, because he was he was enjoying that so much. But uh, Jim, uh, yeah, so obviously props to Reagan, his allies, especially Margaret Thatcher, uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, encouraging people in his homeland of Poland and elsewhere uh, to remember their human dignity and, and value freedom. I think that is a, a huge component of it as well. Ultimately, Jim, I think the, the first notion we had that Gorbachev was going to be different than his predecessors was when he cheered the speech of heavyweight champion Rocky Balboa, who said, I can change and you can change and everybody can change. And that's really the moment that the Cold War began to thaw. You could do that. I, I also think some sense got knocked into him by Frank Drebin. Um, <laughs> I, okay, now every, you know, this is typical Three Martini Lunch podcast humor, but I, in today's joke, I kind of made this observation. The Zucker brothers, uh, who along with Abrams are the, uh, the, the creators of Police Squad and a bu Airplane and all of these classic screwball, goofy comedies of the 70s and 80s, um, I looked it up because I had the suspicion they were, in fact, uh, descendants of a Russian immigrant. And I don't know how close they were, whether they heard stories about the old country or something like that. But I know a thing or two about Russian Jews and immigrants. And they generally don't have warm and fuzzy feelings uh, about uh, how the Soviet government treated them. They were second class citizens and the Soviet government really never let them forget it. And so I can't help but get the feeling that in that scene, a movie that you know went out in 1988 and probably it was filmed in either early 88, late 87 or something like that, where you have Muammar Gaddafi and Idi Amin and Yasser Arafat and all these other you know rogues sitting around the table talking about how they want to you know destroy Washington D.C. By the way, a line that has a unfortunate connotation many years later. And uh, Gorbachev sitting at the table says, what, and get rid of, you know, and, and throw away three years of good public relations? I have the Americans thinking I am a nice guy. In some of their polls, I am more popular than their president. And, you know, like what, you know, like it's funny 
But it's also a little bit of a geopolitical statement from the Zucker brothers saying, don't trust Gorbachev. He may seem nice. He may seem more polite. He may seem like he's less of a, a you know, mass murdering maniac. But in the end, even a nice and polite Soviet premier is still a Soviet premier. Um, so I think there was actually something a little kind of funny about that in that observation. I think that was telling us something there. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yes, then, you know, Drebin kicked his butt and then we all learned. And also, by the way, it turns out the, uh, the, the forehead birthmark was fake. <laughs> Drebin saved the queen. He uh, saw through Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, his tactics are not always orthodox, but uh, he got the job done. All right. You know, Greg, at some point we need to, just before we move on, at some point we need to write the Three Martini Lunch History of Modern America history book <laughs> that just incorporates all of these movies that we've just decided really happened and uh, influenced the, the real-life events. So much more entertaining that way. All right. Let's talk about our official Good Martini now, and we're going to talk about a couple of key Senate races here uh, in our first two martinis. And Jim, Herschel Walker has the lead within the margin of error, but he's got the lead in, uh, in a couple different polls now, and that seems to be a change from where we were. He was always close behind Senator Warnock, but according to an Emerson poll, 46% of very likely Georgia voters said they planned to vote for Walker, while 44% said they would back Warnock and 7% were undecided. Now, the last Emerson poll in April showed Walker with a four-point lead, but most polls in between uh, from a variety of outlets have shown Warnock in the lead. Also, Trafalgar, which has had a very good track record uh, in recent cycles, now has Walker up, I believe, by about a point or so. But uh, again, very, very close. But the momentum... Uh, incremental as it may be, seems to be with uh, Herschel Walker. And in a state where Joe Biden is deeply unpopular, shouldn't be too surprised. But uh, hopefully we can get that margin even wider. You know, as much as I've been down on the Republican Senate nominees this year, I've, I don't think I've ever really written off Herschel Walker. I've pointed out the fact that still a lot of people love him for his football career and uh, days at the University of Georgia. You know, Georgia is a fairly Republican-leaning state. And uh, this is supposed to be a good year for Republicans. You know, the natural dynamics, the natural political environment would point to a Republican beating a Democrat. Uh, Warnock is, you know, won by the skin of his teeth in some very unusual circumstances in that runoff. Oh, by the way, let's keep in mind, it's not unthinkable that this race could go to a runoff as well. But there's one other factor I think maybe is at work here. And I'm just kind of workshopping this idea. I'm not 100% sure. But let's say you're a Republican candidate for Senate. You've never run for office before, and you're you're flawed. You're not perfect. I don't think I'm being mean when I say that Herschel Walker has not been the most articulate candidate uh, that the Republicans put have, could have put out there this cycle. In that circumstance, I think I'd rather be a Herschel Walker, where Brian Kemp is, you know, ahead of uh, Stacey Abrams by a healthy and consistent margin in polling so far this year. And I'd rather be a J.D. Vance, uh, who's got Mike DeWine, who looks like he's cruising to re-election in Ohio. You know, can people split their tickets? Yes. Right now, uh, Vance looks like he's up by a little bit, and you know, DeWine looks like he's up by a bunch. Right now, there's a you know probably six or seven point, or maybe a little bit less than that, split in Georgia ballots. But I think if there's a Republican governor who's an incumbent and who's going to win by a wide margin. That's like a wind at your back. People are going to be going there. They're already going to be voting for Republicans. It's going to bring out Republican voters. I think that's a big advantage to you. If you are Blake Masters in Arizona, I don't know if Kerry Lake helps you that much. If you are Doug Mastriano, if you're uh, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, I don't know if Mastriano helps you that much. Although, to be honest, 
you know, Mastriano is at least going to bring out the populist nationalist. Uh, the election was stolen Trump voters. I, I don't know if, if Oz would bring those people out by himself. So um, I think it's interesting to watch how the gubernatorial races might be playing a factor in these Senate races. Still a lot of road ahead, but if you're a Georgia Republican, you're probably feeling a little bit better this week than you did a week or two ago. Yeah, anytime you see the numbers uh, putting the Republican ahead, it's it's a plus. But again, it's within the margin of error. A long way to go. We'll see if the debates happen. Walker has actually asked for a bunch of them. Uh, Warnock has not uh, agreed to that, so we'll see if anything happens there. Long way to go, though. Still have uh, over two months to go. Meanwhile, Jim, on to our bad martini, and that takes us to the Pennsylvania Senate race, where, depending on the poll, you either have John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, the Democrat, up by a lot, or you have him up by a little. Three, four points, according to Trafalgar. Others have had him up double digits. Fetterman, of course, uh, is coming off of a stroke. He has come back into the public eye a little bit here in the last couple of weeks, and the struggles that he's facing as a result of the stroke are evident. Uh, a lot of halting pauses and so forth, sometimes losing track of what he was trying to say, maybe trying to figure out how to how to get a word out that he's thinking of. Not sure exactly of the medical situation, but uh, he's now rejecting uh, one of the early debates in this cycle that was supposed to be held on September 6th. Uh, Fetterman uh, said he wouldn't agree to a list of debate concessions because they were mocking him as a stroke survivor. Uh, apparently, the Oz campaign said it would, quote, pay for any additional medical personnel Fetterman might need to have on standby in addition to permitting him bathroom breaks and allowing him to have all of his notes on hand along with an earpiece to obtain answers from his staff. And so the Fetterman campaign is saying that Dr. Oz and his team are making a joke of it. But in the end, Jim, it may be because John Fetterman can't stand there or sit there for an hour or an hour and a half and have a coherent discussion. Because from what we've seen on the campaign trail, that's not out of the question. So, Greg, my first thought is, why would they need additional medical personnel to be at the site of the debate when Mehmet Oz is there? <laughs> he is never a mind, doctor. You know, yeah. Never mind CPR if you do brain surgery. If you do. I guess I want to ask the Oz campaign, what does you more good? Having the debate or making some snarky shots at uh, Fetterman? They're probably deserved, but nonetheless giving him that excuse or that out. I think if you're Oz, you want the message to be, hey, anytime, any place, I will, I'm, I'm ready. I will, you know, there's no circumstances. I have no preconditions. You know, you show up, I show up, and I will debate, you know, kind of that, look eager to have that debate. Now, I think we all know, like, I think from what we've seen of Fetterman, the brief appearances, you know, this guy is nowhere near 100%, and, you know, recovering from a stroke usually takes a while. Now, Obviously, a lot of Pennsylvanians are going to have a lot of sympathy for Fetterman. And, you know, as a human being, we should want this guy to make a full recovery. I hope he lives to be 100. There are some very interesting uh, details, including the idea that he was actually diagnosed with serious cardiovascular problems, uh, given a prescription. And then he didn't see his doctor for five years, which I'm going to say to every listener out there, don't do this. Uh, listen to your doctor. If they sell you to take some prescription medication, refill that prescription. Go regularly check in with your doctor. Let them know how they're doing. I don't know if this necessarily would have prevented uh, the stroke, but remember at the time, you know, Fetterman was like beyond 400 pounds. Um, this was a guy who was on a road to serious health problems. Hopefully it's been averted, but uh, this seems pretty serious. And I think if you're the Oz campaign, there are two messages you can effectively use. The first is, look, they told us this was a minor hiccup. This was not a minor hiccup. This guy had a you know, life-threatening stroke and his recovery is going to take a while. 
he's not playing straight with you. This is a serious issue. And they basically, and kind of like played it to, because the Democrats were worried about this. And basically just make the acknowledgement, like, look, you know, it, it's unfortunate this happened to this guy. But he's not well enough to run and he's not well enough to serve as a senator. And, you know, maybe that gets traction. Maybe it doesn't. I think it's reasonable to say when you spent, you know, two to three months off the campaign trail, you know, you know how well is this guy? And if he can't get through a speech, you know, speaking and, and all that stuff it really kind of matters <laughs> in your job as a senator. Um, and so I think there was some, tra- you know, potential traction there. I think also the Oz campaign, you know, I don't know if this is the sort of thing you say on the record, but you just kind of acknowledge to everybody in both the national and state press corps who's covering this. Come on, you know why he doesn't want to debate. He's, he's in no condition to do it. He can't do it. He, you know, his uh, mind, his body, his mouth, his uh, you know, verbal articulation, all of that stuff isn't what it used to be. And it's probably going to take him. God only knows, six months, a year? God only, you know, it's going to take a while for him to get back to that. That's why he's not debating, and he's trying to hide this from you. He's trying to tell you that he's fine just on the message on his, the night of his primary win was that he'd, quote, had a little hiccup, unquote. And later on, he says it's life-threatening. That's the, people are always going to be sympathetic to somebody who's had a serious health problem. And, the you know, the campaign spokesman who said if he'd ever eaten a vegetable, he wouldn't be a vegetable. It just kind of, you know, there's snide, obnoxious stuff that isn't needed. You just make the point, like, look, he's not leveling with you. He's not being honest about that, and that should bother you. And I think that will get a lot more traction than, you know, uh, you know, debate uh, rules and, and stuff like that. I agree with that. I think uh, it's been amateur hour in a couple different ways over at the Oz campaign. But the Fetterman campaign uh, has been really weak as well. And it's not just him and his medical condition. The only thing they ever talk about, and basically the campaign is a series of memes at this point, is teasing Dr. Oz for his inflation video about crudite. Instead of talking about inflation, they're talking about what he was making. And he could have picked something a little more blue collar, but nonetheless, they're trying to distract from the inflation problem and, and tying that to Joe Biden. And they're pointing out that Dr. Oz is from New Jersey, which he is. Now, what the RNC is doing, and Oz would be smarter doing, is finding all these radical clips of uh, John Fetterman from back in the day saying he's in lockstep with Bernie on everything, uh, talking about his record as being on the state parole board where he's letting people out left and right, where he doesn't think there should be anything left to life in prison after, I think it was 20 years. Everybody should get out after 20 years, regardless of the situation. I mean, this guy is a radical, and not only uh, do you need to get that on the record, you're now in a position where you can call him out on that stuff, and he's not in a position very well to to defend himself And because there's not really a way to defend it. He could try to skirt around the issue, but he's not going to be able to do that very well either. And so sticking to the record is the best way for Dr. Oz, who's still deeply unpopular, to try and get over the hump here. Yeah, I mean, just the two thoughts about this is that if, if he, Oz was running against a generic Democrat, and by that I mean Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, um, <laughs> then you'd be like, well, you know, you'd hate to lose the race, but you'd, you know, okay, well, you know, at least we, could, at least we can get some maniac in there. The fact that this is Pennsylvania, kind of a classic swing state. Trump won it. Biden won it. Close both times. Toomey won it uh, in the Senate race. The Casey, the other senator, is a Democrat. This is, this is a purple state. This is a jump ball state. It really should be the sort of thing that a, uh, a Republican should at least be putting up a serious fight here. And maybe they should point out there's been a little bit of an improvement in Oz's poll number. So maybe as we get closer to fall, he's starting to you know get the swing of things and things like that. So like the idea of a Bernie Sanders type of representing Pennsylvania and then six years down the road running as an incumbent, 
really is kind of irksome and kind of irritated. And it's a 50-50 Senate, and we've had a couple other races that don't look so good, like Arizona, so we can't afford to lose this. So could Republicans overcome a loss by Oz in Pennsylvania? Yeah, you can look at the map and say, okay, maybe we flip this one, flip that one. But uh, yeah, that's where we are, and it's um, deeply, deeply frustrating. Oh, and he wants to ban fracking, which, you know, being the blue collar guy, supposedly in Pennsylvania, would not go over well also. But you got to let people know that that's the case. And so that's what the Oz campaign should be doing. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And speaking of Pennsylvania, let's talk about Joe Biden's visit to the Keystone State on Tuesday. This is just a uh, total mashup of everything that makes us cringe about Joe Biden. So let's start with, uh, first of all, him not knowing between uh, Josh Shapiro, who's actually running for governor, and Fetterman, who's actually running for Senate. Uh, Biden uh, couldn't spit it out correctly of who was running for what. Please, please elect the attorney general of the Senate. Elect that big old boy to be governor. Yeah, that was supposedly Fetterman, who's actually running for Senate. Uh, it's never a Joe Biden appearance without some uh, cringeworthy stereotypes. If I can inter- just interject for a moment, my deceased son, Bo, he was the attorney general of the state of Delaware. And what he used to do is go down on the east side, the what called the bucket, highest crime rate in the country. There's a place where I used to, I was the only white guy that worked as a lifeguard down in that area, on the east side. And you know where the, you can always tell where the best basketball in the state is and the best basketball in the city is. It's where everybody shows up. All right. Uh, and then he started talking. <laughs> do we want to stop? You no, know, it was one of those neighborhoods with the good basketball players. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> High crime, um, really good basketball. <laughs> Any other political career would be over right there. Nacho Biden. Anyway, all right, let's talk about the Second Amendment. He had a couple different uh, clips that we're going to show you now. First of all, he claims that uh, bullets are different coming out of an AR-15. Do you realize the bullet out of an AR-15 travels five times as rapidly as a bullet shot out of any other gun? No, I didn't realize that because it's not true. Uh, But then, as far as the argument that uh, the Second Amendment is necessary to protect us against a tyrannical government, uh, he offered this. And for those brave right-wing Americans who say it's all about keeping America, keeping America's independent and safe, if you want to fight against the country, you need an F-15. You need something a little more than a gun. No, I'm not joking. Think about this. Think about the rationale we use. Not joking, Jim. Not joking. Uh, so tired old lines from uh, Joe Biden. And so from top to bottom, an unimpressive performance in so many different ways. Yeah. I mean, first of all, in that first one, sometimes Biden takes pauses where, Greg, I'm I'm like, did the audio fail? (laughs) Does mic drop? You know, that's the second observation that I kind of am left, you know, I I saw this from uh, Noam Bloom, who's on Twitter at Neon Taster, at Neon Taster. And he actually made this observation back in May after the Uvalde shooting. And I think it's a very sharp one. And I think it's one of the reasons Biden... One, it's not the orator that he think he is, and he's not as effective a speaker as Obama was, as Bill Clinton was, and admittedly those are you know some two pretty naturally gifted, uh, you know, charismatic politicians. Even if you disagree with them, as I do, they they you know they were good at going out and charming a crowd. 
Noam puts it, quote, on top of Biden's other deficiencies, he is just unable to rise to any occasion with anything other than his pre-made list of cliche quips. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, you know, deer don't wear Kevlar. The Second Amendment doesn't allow you to own a cannon. Yada, 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 ad infinitum. And, you know, yesterday, Noam made the observation that, you know, Biden repeated his usual talking points about the cannons and deer don't wear Kevlar. You know, even after something like Uvalde, he keeps going back to this very short list of that. And this is a lot of these same old stories that really weren't that great the first time around, that really weren't all that. It's not that devastating zinger about, you know, dare not wear a Kevlar, you know, it, he, you know, and this is where you kind of part of the, you know, how much of this is because he's been cushioned by a, you know, media that was too kind on him and Democratic, poli- you know, colleagues who uh, rolled their eyes and just put up with them. He's never really gotten that much honest feedback. And when he has, he's found some reason to discount it. Or how much of this is the fact that he's 80 years old, almost 80 years old, and that he is uh, doesn't remember what he said in the previous speech. And he's just got this, you know, a little note card in his mental note card in his mind of a couple of anecdotes that things that he thinks are hilarious and that he thinks are, you know, drop the mic in your face, you know, slam dunk comments that we've all heard before. And oftentimes they're not that uh, uh, compelling and often they're factually challenged. And he goes on, you're like, dude, just think about it. You know, really? An AR-15 puts out a five times faster than any other. Really? A lot of this stuff is like, factoids that he half kind of sort of remembers and exaggerates and it just makes sitting through a joe biden speech utterly painful just insufferable the smugness the you know um and so i you know i think this is a just quick you know demonstration of biden he's supposed to give a big address to the country on thursday i hopefully the speech writers will keep this stuff out but i also kind of noticed like biden has had a better couple of a better run in the last six weeks or so and Greg, you notice what's happened in the last six weeks, right? He wasn't around. <laughs> yeah, you know, he, was, he had COVID, had to be self-isolated, did fewer appearances. Then he went on vacation to South Carolina. I think it was Kiowa Island. Then he went back on vacation to Delaware. Then he had the tested positive again, had to self you know, like he hasn't been around. And I think that's why his, his, his job approval rating went up. I guess a lesson that like everybody should have taken from the Obama era, from the Trump era, and here in the Biden era. Americans don't necessarily need to hear from their president every day. I, I get suspicious when we don't hear from from Biden for stretches. But in the end, you know, it'd be kind of nice if we could just live our lives. And we didn't need the president coming out and yammering at us every, you know, every 24 hours or so. Yeah. So that's where we are. Uh, you know, I, I, it's very typical stuff from Biden. I think if he was anybody else, like, yeah, I, I think you can just kind of see the audience cringing in the background. You know, the basketball, you know, it's just, you know, just uh it's a painful thing. He's too old for the job. He can't really do it anymore. But, you know, we're stuck with him because the alternative is Kamala. Right. No joke. No joke. No, he's going to he's going to hit you with an F-15 if you don't want to give him your guns. But he's going to give yes. a speech on American values and unity tomorrow night. That's right. Nothing's more unifying than this guy. <laughs> you mentioned one Twitter reaction. Another one is from Mary Catherine Ham, who uh, channeled King George III from Hamilton by saying, I would hypothetically kill you right-wingers with F-15s to remind you of my love. <laughs> so. Yeah. Because yeah. we got to unite or die. I'll give you that option. That's <laughs> amazing. Jim, on to tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. 
Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And don't forget about Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Wednesday, and join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. Are there mismatches in qualifications uh, versus what's actually available? Is some of this, you know, deindustrialization and the shifts, um, meaning that we have people who want to do certain work, but it's just not there? How much have, have changes in those two, I guess, trends, you know, the nature of the of, of available work? I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.